Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. You can have dozens of clinical trials ongoing at any given time, so it can be hard to keep up with everything. But if you can just familiarize yourself with the inclusion and exclusion criteria, you can then help your healthcare team identify patients who may be good candidates for these clinical trials and make that recommendation. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on the resiliency of drug supplies and approval process for new medications. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Today, we are going to look at what you as a frontline pharmacist need to know about the drug approval process. Joining me is a colleague of mine, Dr. Amanda Melton. Amanda is a Senior Clinical Manager with the Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence at Vizient. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. There are hundreds of clinical trials searching for COVID-19 treatments. So why are we hearing so much about expanded access programs and emergency use authorization? Why not just access these treatments through trials? Whenever possible, patients should be accessing these drugs through clinical trials. These clinical trials are really the pathway, right, through which the FDA is ultimately going to approve these drugs. But it's not always possible for patients to access these drugs through clinical trials. They may not qualify based on their age, severity of COVID, hospitalization status, or it just may not be feasible for them to participate based on their location. So there are a number of factors that can come into play where they can't participate in a clinical trial, and that's really where expanded access programs, or EAPs, come into play. So let's say I'm a clinical pharmacist helping to advise the team on potential pathways to access a drug. How do I determine if there's a clinical trial to enroll a patient in? So I'm glad you asked this because I really feel this is one area in which we can really help our healthcare team right now in the time of COVID. As you know, as a fellow pharmacist, we are the experts on drugs, right? Not only on approved drugs, but just in general, helping our healthcare practitioners to understand how drugs work and also to understand the potential risks and benefits. So at your local level, at your facility and healthcare systems, I would just say familiarizing yourself with what clinical trials are ongoing at your hospital. And it can be difficult depending on the size of your healthcare system. You can have dozens of clinical trials ongoing at any given time. So it can be hard to keep up with everything. But if you can just familiarize yourself with the inclusion and exclusion criteria, you can then help your healthcare team identify patients who may be good candidates for these clinical trials and make that recommendation. And then just keeping up to date on what clinical trials are ongoing across the nation, you can check out clinicaltrials.gov. That's a resource that I like to check out. Amanda, what about patients that don't qualify for a clinical trial? How do they access these investigational drugs? Assuming there has not been an emergency use authorization or EUA issued and the patient cannot access a clinical trial, that is where that expanded access program or EAP comes into play. What do we as pharmacists need to know about these EAPs or expanded access programs? What do you as a pharmacist need to know about EAPs? I would say at a high level, first, because patient safety should be at the forefront of our minds, right? We are an advocate for the patient and first rule as a pharmacist or as a healthcare provider is, of course, do no harm. So first thing to keep in mind is that these are investigational products. If you are accessing a drug through an EAP, 
that means it has not been approved for the use in which you are intending to use it. So these products may be effective, they may not, and they may cause serious side effects. But it's just one of these situations where the patient has a serious or life-threatening condition, which of course COVID is, there's not a good treatment option available, and they can't participate in a clinical trial. So at that point, they are willing to take that higher risk in hopes that the drug may help. And one other thing I would keep in mind about EAPs is that the goal of an EAP is different from a clinical trial. So the goal of a clinical trial is, as you know, to establish the safety and efficacy of a drug. Whereas the goal of an EAP is just to get the drug to the patient. And you can, of course, under an EAP, collect safety and efficacy data, and you will, but that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is just to get the drug to the patient. Amanda, you've touched on the general criteria needed to access a drug under an EAP, but can you tell me the actual step-by-step process to do so? First, I'll start by saying it will vary, and it can be somewhat complex, although the FDA has really done a good job of describing the process and laying it out for you on their website. So the way in which you go about accessing a drug under an EAP, it depends on the number of patients that you're requesting the drug for. So it may be a single patient or it can be multiple patients. And then the second part of this is it depends on whether or not there's already been an investigational new drug application submitted or IND. And I believe we're most generally as pharmacists familiar with that in terms of clinical trials. So when we move from preclinical studies to clinical studies, an IND is submitted to the FDA. And all an IND is at its core is a request to submit a drug to humans. So here we are, of course, requesting that a drug be administered to our patients. So an IND has to be submitted. So you either submit a new IND or you submit an amendment, essentially. It's called a protocol to the IND. And then you can submit your request either through a general pathway or emergently. It really depends on what you're going for there and what pathway you take. But For the most part, what I'm seeing in the time of COVID is submitting a request in the form of an emergency IND for a single patient. Here's how I think of it. You have four stakeholders, okay? So first stakeholder who you are going to approach is the manufacturer because the manufacturer is not obligated to provide this drug. You first have to make sure that they are willing to give the drug to you to give to your patient. So that's your first stakeholder. And assuming they are willing to provide the drug, your next stakeholder who you approach is going to be the FDA. And how you go about getting access to the drug through the FDA is you're going to submit a form. And this is called FDA form 3926. Generally, you would submit that form and then it would start a 30-day waiting period. But if you submit it emergently, you're actually requesting it via telephone or another form of electronic means and you submit that form after the fact. But that's your second stakeholder is the FDA. So you have manufacturer, FDA, then it comes down to the patient. This is an investigational agent, as we discovered. So you do need informed consent from the patient. And then also in support of the patient, you are going to need approval from the IRB. So they'll be reviewing how you intend to give this drug to the patient. And they're also going to be looking over that informed consent and really making sure that the patient truly understands the potential risks and benefits of taking this drug. So those are your four stakeholders who you need buy-in from. How long does all of this take? Do you have to submit an emergency IND? 
That's a really good question. So if you recall before I said there was this general pathway under which you access the drug under an EAP, or you can submit the request emergently. So that's the traditional pathway. Under this emergency IND or EIND, what happens is instead of submitting this form ahead of time and waiting for approval from the FDA, you actually get approval via electronic means, so via telephone or via email. And that only takes a matter of hours. They say they generally turn around your request or their approval in a matter of a few hours. And then you submit the form after the fact. You have 15 days to submit that form to the FDA. And you also notify the IRB after the fact under this pathway. You have five days to notify them. So it's a much quicker pathway to get approval to give the drug to your patient. We've talked a lot about expanded access programs. Let's transition to emergency use authorizations or EUAs. How do EUAs differ from EIPs? That is a great question. And while there are some similarities, there definitely are differences. We are still dealing with this serious or life-threatening condition. But in the case of an EUA or emergency use authorization, what happens is the Health and Human Services Secretary declares a national emergency. And this serious or life-threatening disease state is ultimately the result of what is going on in that emergency. So while we still have this serious or life-threatening disease, and these products are still investigational, the FDA has given us permission up front to administer these drugs to our patients. So we don't have to get informed consent from a patient, and we don't have to get IRB approval. So in many ways, it's easier from the practitioner's standpoint to access the drug under an EUA. There are less steps. Once an EUA is authorized for a drug, how long does it last? So it really depends. Of course, once the national emergency is over, the EUA would go away. Ultimately, it would generally be for the term under which it was originally declared. However, the FDA is going to continually review the risks and benefits associated with this drug because under an EUA, ultimately, the FDA just has to believe that the potential and known benefits of the drug outweigh the potential and known risks of the drug. As they get more information, again, this is an investigational drug, so they're going to continuously review, and as they get more information, they can change their mind and revoke that EUA. Is there anything else you want to convey about EUAs? If an EUA is issued for a drug, it doesn't mean that the drug is approved. There's still a lot we don't know about these drugs. Like we said, they're investigational. So if there is any opportunity for you to enroll your patients in a clinical trial so that we can find out more about these drugs, that is the route you should take, is to enroll your patients in a clinical trial to get more information. Lately, there have been pharmaceutical companies in the news pursuing EUAs for their vaccine candidates. Why not simply apply for a biologics license application? That is a great question, and I'm probably going to offer an overly simplified answer. What I would say is it likely comes down to the time that it takes to get approval for these agents. If you pursue approval under the standard pathway that you would take through the FDA, it can take 10 months or longer, right? There are expedited pathways 
And actually, Dr. Stephen Lucio will be discussing some of these pathways in an upcoming podcast, so I'll definitely check that out. However, even under these expedited pathways for approval, you're still looking at six months or more for the FDA to act on some of these applications. So if you have a vaccine candidate that really appears efficacious and we're seeing good safety data with the vaccine, I would say likely they just want to get it out to the population sooner. And that is where that EUA would come into play. And something else to keep in mind is that the issuance of an EUA or seeking an EUA for a product doesn't preclude the manufacturer from ultimately seeking approval for that product. It's just a means of getting it out to the general population more quickly in the time of COVID-19. Thank you so much, Amanda. You've given us a lot of important information today. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today. Like us and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brommel. Thanks for listening.